Good morning, everybody. You would think with my wife leading worship this morning, I would know when I was supposed to come up here, but you know, I didn't, and here I am. Uh, my name is David Kakish, and for a few more weeks, I'm one of the elders at Cornerstone Church, and this is, could be a potentially awkward situation, you know? Have you ever had lunch with someone, and you're leaving, and you say goodbye, and you leave the front door, and then realize you kind of parked in the same area, so you got to like awkwardly walk together, and you're like, do we have to say anything to each other? We just say goodbye. This could be that, but I hope it's not, because it's been a fantastic lunch, and uh, We've kind of said our goodbyes in a matter of speech, but I'm just savoring every extra moment I get with you guys, and you're stuck with me for a few more weeks. We are still in the book of 1 Samuel. We're looking at the fact that we are feeble people, but thank God Jesus is a faithful king, and I wanted to kind of recap and catch us up back into the thrust of what we saw last in 1 Samuel, and I'll do so with a story, if that's okay. Uh, Years ago, I was pastoring in the Bible Belt, and I was trying to love on and evangelize this rough-and-tumble guy, and the course of our relationship, I invited him to church many times, and many times he said, hell no, was his response. Anyways, uh, one Sunday he showed up, and it really surprised me. Um, but he showed up a little late. We were halfway through announcements. I'm sitting in the front, big church building. I had no idea. I guess he walked in, did the whole, like, look around, spotted me, walked over, and uh, he came to sit in the chair beside me that was empty. I say it was empty, but uh, my Bible was on that chair. So when I saw him standing there, I picked up my Bible and sat on the ground and kind of motioned for him to sit down. And what happened next really surprised me. Uh, He bends down, and he picks up my Bible, and he shoves it in my chest, and leans in, and whispers in my ear, that's the word of God, bro. Show some respect. And I couldn't believe it. I mean, this dude was a drug dealer. He's living with his girlfriend, doing God knows what, and he's incensed that I disrespected God by putting my Bible on the floor. And I'm a snarky person. It's one of my many faults. Um, I leaned towards him and whispered back in his ear, this isn't the word of God. This is ink on a stack of paper covered in pleather. This, the truth within it, is the word of God. And if you actually respected God, you would do what it says. Yeah? Anyways, uh, the misunderstanding my friend had was the same one that Israel was falling into where we left off. And it's this, uh, belief in, feelings about, respect, reverence for the trappings and the symbols and the ideas of faith is not the same thing as true faith. It's it's not the same thing. This morning we're picking up where we left off, 1 Samuel chapter 4 in verses 1 and 2. Israel has an enemy, the Philistines, they want to fight them, they go into battle, and guess what? battle without God, they lose. They lose. Uh, In verse 3, they're licking their wounds and they ask this question, why did the Lord bring this defeat on us today before the Philistines? That's actually a good question, right? And the right answer would be, because you have abandoned him and you are in sin. That would be the right answer, but they don't arrive at the right answer. Instead, they decide to do what? They bring the most sacred thing God had given them, the Ark of the Covenant, a sign of his love for them, his presence with them that was supposed to remain in the temple. They bring it out into the battlefield. Why? With the hopes that, and this is a direct quote from them, that it will save them, that the Ark of the Covenant will save them. Israel wanted something. They wanted to defeat their enemies. And only when they failed, when they couldn't do it on their own, did they even think about bringing God into the picture, right? Hey, waiter, over here. I dropped my glass. Um, and they tried to use the Ark of the Covenant like a lucky rabbit's foot. The Ark of the Covenant communicated God's presence with them, but it didn't equal God's presence. 
But they saw it as a, a box to capture God. If this is his presence, if we bring it with us here, then he has to be with us here. And they try to bind God to what they wanted to do. And that's just not how it works. And I've told you before, they took splinters of God's truth, that God loves them, that he has all power, that he, promise, he promises to be with them. And they took these splinters of true things and reassembled them to make an idol of their own fashioning, right? True things, and they made their own idol, and we'll soon see that it didn't turn out well for them. Ultimately, they were putting their faith and their trust in an idea of God and not God himself. Um, why did they do that? Because you can control an idea. You can control a symbol. You can. Uh, you can get your idea and your symbol to do your bidding. You can use it to baptize your foolish and sinful desires. And in short, what they did is uh, try to convince themselves that their cause was God's cause. What they were about, what they wanted, is exactly what God wanted. And that symbol gave them a false confidence that God was with them in their unrighteous ventures. So what did God do? Uh, he does what he does a lot of times with us. If you want to walk in folly, be my guest. He allows them to walk in this foolishness, and now we're going to see how it turned out for them. If you have your Bible, open up with me to 1 Samuel chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11 together. Oh, i got it here on my own screen. Hear the word of the Lord. Uh, now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. When the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Here's their solution. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, the priest, Hophni and Phinehas, uh, were there with the Ark of the Covenant. Verses 5 through 11. It's small, I'm sorry. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all of Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has ever happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And it was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God for it. I already preached on verses 1 through 4, and I called that sermon, God's Not a Lucky Charm. We don't get to just tack God on whatever we want to do and then just assume he's bound to do it. Uh, in this week's brief message, we're going to look at verses 5 through 11. And to help us check with this story, I'm going to break it up into three distinct scenes, and here they are. Scene 1, Israel's action, verse 5. Scene 2, the Philistines' reaction, verses 6 through 9. And the final scene is uh, verses 10 through 11, the, the tragic results. Uh, and I'm going to do my best to summarize, explain what's happening in the text, and then we'll spend the rest of our time really discussing the implications of Israel's actions and uh, discuss how to hopefully avoid falling into the same trap. I don't typically title my sermons, but you know, I'm feeling creative these days. I titled this sermon, Artificial Faith, from 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 5 through 11. If I do my job properly, we'll hopefully see that artificial, hollow faith begets artificial, hollow results. So we're going to start with scene one. 
Israel's action. Verse 5. Here it is. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all of Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. All right, what's happening here? What's happening is the people sent a few messengers back to Shiloh with word that Hophni and Phinehas, the priests, should bring the Ark of the Covenant into the battle, right? So that it would be with them to save them from the Philistines. And I want us to consider this for a second. Before this, Israel had just been defeated in a skirmish with the Philistines. 4,000 men, 4,000 brothers, cousins, neighbors were just decimated before the people's eyes, these other soldiers' eyes. I mean, it's more than population of Leavenworth, right? Add to that, we have no idea how many were maimed and injured in this fight. And you have to think the Israelite soldiers are mourning the loss of their friends and family and neighbors. They're discouraged. They're scared, feeling like, how will we ever go back and fight them? They're going to destroy us again. That's how they felt before. But now when Tweedledee and Tweedledum bring the Ark of the Covenant to the battle, I mean, when these discouraged soldiers see the Ark, they are amped. They're so excited. I mean, outside of the high priest, they had never seen the Ark of the Covenant before because they weren't supposed to. It was supposed to stay in the Holy of Holies. And so now they see priests in robes carrying the Ark on these posts. And this Ark is a box covered in gold with angels on top of it. And it's just this thing, and they'd never seen it before. And it gave them this new boost of confidence. Whoa. And they're thinking... If the ark is here, that means that God is here. And if God is here, we're sure to win. And verse 5 says that all of Israel gave a mighty shout. When I read this, I pictured William Wallace riding his horse, you know, in front of the line of soldiers. They may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. And all the men start shouting, right? Like they go nuts. They're cheering. They're yelling. They're probably banging their swords against their shields. Yes, let's go. The text makes a point to tell us that their yells and shouts were so loud that the earth, the ground, started to shake. Their shouts were so resilient and passionate that the Philistines heard it, and the Philistines are lined up more than two miles away. That's how loud they were. It's crazy. Which leads us to scene two. That's the Israel's action. Here's the Philistines' reaction. Verses six through nine. We're not going to read it all. What's happening here? Well, Here's the Philistine side of it. They just kicked Israel's butt in that skirmish. 4,000 men, and they're barely touched. And they're back at their camp. Who knows? I mean, they're probably partying, patting each other on the back, uh, trading war stories. Remember when I cut that guy's head off and the blood was shooting out and his friend was like, oh no, yeah, that was awesome. We have no idea what they're doing, but they're pretty happy about whatever they're doing. And they're probably assuming Israel has no chance. If they're smart, they're going to pack their bags, go home and retreat and call it a day. Then all of a sudden, they start hearing this great commotion from the Israelites two miles away, and they're super confused by that, right? Can you understand why? Like, nah. In verse 6, they ask, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? They're wondering, why would they be cheering right now? We just wiped the floor with them. I mean, did they get reinforcements? Did another nation join them in this fight against us? Did someone's mom bring Gatorade and orange slices? Like, what's happening over there? We have no idea. If somehow, we're not told how, maybe a spy or someone, somehow they discover the reason for the ruckus. 
They hear that the ark of the Lord has come into the camp, and when they hear that, they are terrified. Again, we're not told how it plays out, but I think we can imagine maybe a spy goes into the general's tent, tells him someone's outside the tent, hears, and a giant game of telephone starts to erupt, right? And this message is passing all throughout their army, and the message that they're passing around is this, a God has come into the camp. See, in the ancient world, when two nations fought each other, it wasn't just my nation versus your nation. Every nation worshipped and served their own gods, distinct gods. And so when two nations fight each other, it's a battle of the gods to see whose god is more powerful. That's what's happening here. That's what happened with Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Whose god is more powerful? But the gods are over there. They typically don't get involved in people's lives. But now a god has joined this fight. A god is in their camp. They're under the impression that the Ark of the Covenant, the Philistines are, the Ark of the Covenant is the visible throne of Israel's invisible God. If the Ark is there, the invisible God is sitting on it. He's there among them. And that scared the junk out of them, right? And it tells us some other stuff. I don't want to get caught in the weeds, so I'm going to try to summarize it as quick as we can. The Philistines are familiar with Israel's God, but they're a little confused on the details, on the specifics. They know some things. Uh, they're familiar with the God of Israel, but they can't dot all their I's and cross all their T's. So here's some of them. They think that the ark's presence equals God's presence. It doesn't, right? They think that the one true God of Israel is a combination of gods. He isn't, right? You'll hear them say, the gods, and how can we fight against the gods? Uh, they are partially right that the God of Israel struck the Egyptians with plagues. He did right? And plagues in the Old Testament, I think, is the modern equivalent of like nuclear war, right? God did strike the Egyptians with plagues, but they're wrong that he did so in the wilderness. Where did God strike the Egyptians with plagues? In Egypt. You see what I mean? Like, they're familiar with some things, but they're kind of wrong on the specifics. So if they went to seminary and tried to pass a theology exam, they're not going to pass. They're going to fail. But even still, I think the reason we're given those details is we're meant to compare and contrast the Philistines with Israel here, right? Think about it. Israel violated God's commandments about what they were supposed to do with the ark. They were not supposed to touch it. They were not supposed to fetch it and bring it into battle and all the rest and use it as a lucky charm. They know that. They should know that. And the point is, Israel clearly doesn't take God seriously, but the Philistines do. They are terrified at the thought of God's presence. And the Philistines are actually rehearsing stories about things they've heard about God's mighty deeds and what he's done for his people and how he's delivered them before. Israel, when they lost, they're like, why did God let us lose? They should have connected the dots because same thing happened in Joshua 7. You are in sin. God is letting you fail in battle so that you would see it. You would come to him. You would repent. He would forgive you. It would go well. They forgot to connect those dots. They forgot the purpose of the ark. They forgot the commandments about the ark. Ultimately, they forgot to fear God. But the Philistines remember. And I was just chewing on it this week. They are remembering stories. What God did in Egypt and the plagues happened hundreds of years before. How would the Philistines even know about it? How did it get to this generation of soldiers? It had been passed down from their parents. Stories about God's faithfulness to Israel had been passed down among their enemies. And they are remembering and rehearsing these stories to each other. They remember what God is able to do. And they're right to be afraid of him. 
And one commentator says it like this. He says, this scene shows us that the Philistines have better theology than God's people. Yikes. And yet, they're still in this quagmire. What are they going to do? And I think with their backs against the wall here, this is their turn for a William Wallace moment, right? They may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. They know they're outgunned. They know they don't have a snowball chance in hell to win this battle. And yet, they know if they lose this war, they will become Israel's slaves. And they would rather die than let that happen. So they muster up all their strength. They hype themselves up with like macho machismo, like, we are men, fight like men. (laughs) And they rush into battle. That's scene two, the Philistines' reaction. Now, scene three, the tragic results. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the Ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. What happened? Y'all, Israel got trounced. The Philistines just wiped them out. In the, in the first skirmish, they had 4,000 Israelites fell in battle. It's a lot. That's sad. But now 30,000 to this line of foolish, just foolish and folly. 30,000 lives sacrificed, not for God and his glory, sacrificed for their own purposes under the guise of their idea of God. This is what God wants. God's with us. We're going to do it. 30,000 lives needlessly sacrificed for self-hype and religious jargon. The Philistines not only destroyed Israel in this battle, but they also captured the Ark of the Covenant, which they assumed meant they captured God. Uh, It's foolish thinking. It's like, got your nose. No, you didn't capture God. You got a box. Uh, But they're convinced. And now they're also convinced that Israel's God took a big loss on this one. And you know what? Most of Israel thinks that too. But for those of us in the know, Verse 11 kind of ends with this random mention. Who cares about Hophni and Phinehas? These two priests, who cares that they died? 30,000 people died. Why are they mentioned? Uh, They're mentioned to show us that Israel's defeat and the Philistines' victory was not a loss on God's side of the column. It was the exact opposite. Uh, This is how God sovereignly fulfilled his word of warning to Eli Because you didn't repent, because you allowed the priesthood to be corrupted, your two sons will die on the same day. God had called his shots, like Babe Ruth, from, I don't know, 10, 20 years ago, and their sin and rebellion and false religion led them to this point. They brought it on their own heads. And with verse 11, we, the readers, are reminded of the same truth we discussed at Easter. Even when it looks like God has failed, he hasn't. Do you know why? Because he cannot. Our God only knows how to triumph. He has no other uh, avenue. He only wins. Uh, And that's what's happening in verses 5 through 11. Now, what can we learn from it? Well, I called this sermon artificial faith, and here's why. In Israel's estimation, in their mind, this war was between good versus evil, light versus darkness, the God of Israel versus Dagon, the God of the Philistines. That's how they pictured it. And from their viewpoint, that's kind of understandable. After all, Israel, they are God's people. They are. Yeah, they had God's priests with them. They sure did. They had the symbol of God's presence with them. They shouldn't have, but they did. You know, it was there. And 
They got whipped in the first battle, lost 4,000 men, but they trusted God by returning to this hopeless fight. They, they trusted God in faith. They shouldn't have. They knew they would might lose, but if God is with them, they trust him. They'll fight. They even worshiped, air quotes, God with all their shouts and their hoorah-rah, and he's going to come through, and he's going to do it. In their mind, they had clear eyes and uh, what's the, full hearts, and they couldn't lose uh, but that wasn't the case. So what happened? Well, like God's people do today, Israel assumed that because they believed certain truths about God, because they went through some of the motions of religion, because they had the symbols of God, it's the word of God, bro, <laughs> okay? Uh, they assumed that God wanted what they wanted, that God is pleased with them, that God hates who they hate, and that their purposes were God's purposes. And obviously, they were wrong. This battle had nothing to do with God. Nothing to do with God. It wasn't good versus evil. It was evil versus evil. In fact, that's the point, the background scripture we read today. They'd become like all the other pagan nations, which is why God is bringing judgment on them. Think about it. You've got the Philistines and you've got the Israelites, and they are identical. Both want power and dominance. Both want each other's land. Both want to enslave the other party. Both are worshiping idols, and both believe that they can manipulate their idols to accomplish their own purposes. They're one and the same, actually. And we touched on that in my last sermon, so I'm going to leave that there. This week, I want to look at verse 5, particularly Israel's instance of artificial faith. Here it is. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And like outside of the context, if we were just reading that, this is your verse of the day, if you didn't know any better, that sounds pious. It sounds like zeal for the Lord. It sounds like a good thing. Like, hey, they saw the ark. God's with them. They're shouting, yes, where it's going to go well. It sounds a lot like Joshua chapter 6. When God tells Joshua to take the ark of the covenant and have the priests march it around the city for six days, and on the seventh day, what do they do? Blow trumpets and shout. And what happens to the walls of Jericho? Come tumbling down. But it's not the same situation. At that moment in history, Israel was on their way to the promised land. There was no home yet for the ark, and that's what God commanded them to do. They remembered that story and wanted to impose it on this current situation because it wasn't about God and his glory and fulfilling his promises to them. It's like, we don't like them Philistines. We want some slaves. We're going after it, and we'll drag God into it by bringing the ark. The situations are completely different. Like we said, they were putting their faith, their trust, and their confidence in a symbol of God, an idea of God, and not God himself, because what they were actually doing is worshiping an idol, uh, but calling it God. And yet, when the ark arrives into the camp, they lost their ever-loving minds in this eruption of excitement and confidence and joy and shouts, right? They have this real powerful acute, off-the-charts emotional response to seeing the ark. Uh, they were downhearted, discouraged. Where is God, my poor friend? What about Fred with his head chopped off and all the blood? But then they see the ark, and they're lifted up, and they celebrate with premature shouts of victory. Shouts that made the ground shake. Shouts and yells of God's power that were heard two miles away. Shouts that, if we didn't know any better, probably sound like really strong faith. Crazy. And it would be fair for you to be thinking right now, what is your point 
crazy person, so I'll just tell you. My point is this. Just like Israel in 1 Samuel 4, when we put our faith, our trust, and our confidence in a symbol of God, in an idea of God, when we put our faith and our trust in those things and not God himself, when we assume that our purposes, the thing we want, is exactly what God wants, God's not involved in that. But we'll often uh, replace the absence of God's presence in our situation with our own emotions. We will hype ourselves up. We're pursuing that God's not involved in, that God doesn't want, but we want him to be involved because if he's involved, it's probably going to work out. Uh, It's a hollow shell, so we fill it with our own emotional cream filling. And we become just like the prophets of Baal, dancing and shouting and screaming and cutting ourselves to feel all the things to convince ourselves that actually God's involved in this uh, when he's not even on the scene. And when we're living that way, the Holy Spirit is not active in that situation, in that desire or that cause, uh, but we won't notice. Do you know why? Because like Israel did here, we will substitute our own adrenaline for the power and peace of the Holy Spirit. We'll pump ourselves up. We will hype ourselves up, and we won't even notice that God's not involved. And in the end, that faith, quote-unquote, it's artificial. It actually has nothing to do with God at all. It's really just us believing in ourselves under the hype of Christian jargon and Christian symbols. And I want to be clear about something. I'm not saying that true faith doesn't evoke emotions or affect our emotions. It does. You've seen me cry and laugh and shout uh, more than anyone should ever want to. True faith does affect our emotions. What I'm saying is that emotions don't always signify true faith. Just because you feel something doesn't mean that that's what God wants. You know, someone who's worried about their finances and then they get a cold call, I got an exciting business opportunity where you can make $1,000 a day. Oh, and it feels right and I want that and this is God's provision. Like, mm, ask him to put you on the do not call list, right? Just, it made me feel something. That must be God, not necessarily. That's what I'm saying. And I don't know, an atheist who believes there is no God might get goosebumps and cry watching The Chosen. A Christian might get really fired up about a political, cultural issue, and both of those emotions mean absolutely nothing if it doesn't spur us to love God and neighbor more. God could have nothing to do with either of those. Emotions just happen. Uh, I don't want to sound cynical. Maybe I am. But honestly, the more hype I see and hear in churches and Christians, my first thought isn't, wow, they're really zealous. Wow, they really trust God. Wow, they really love them. When I see a ton of hype uh, and hear a lot of hype, I usually like lean in a little. I want to like examine it and listen a little closer. Like, what is it that's happening here? What is it you're saying? And again, probably shouldn't tell you this story, but here it is. <laughs> the last church we served at was a very large church, and it was a very um, hype kind of church, right? Like, I told you before, I never did announcements because I just didn't have the personality for it. Uh, it's the best Sunday ever. You're so excited to be here. And it's like, okay. And they wrote a lot of songs, great songs. Uh, some of them, I still listen to some. Other songs, I'm like, huh. Uh, but they're like super popular, like worldwide, and they trend on iTunes. And I remember they wrote a song, and they were singing <laughs> looking at my wife. They were singing it one week, and it had this line that repeated, I don't know, 7,000 times. Um, <laughs> If you're not here, I don't want to be. Like 
over and over. And I'm talking, I mean, dark room. Uh, we, we gave away, I don't know, 500 pairs of earplugs because the music was so loud. Babies would wear, it is just, and the worship leader is just stomping. And he's got the praise chorus behind him. Electric guitars ran. People's got their hands raised, jumping up and down. And they're singing over and over again. If you're not here, I don't want to be. If you're not here, I don't want to be. I went, what? After the service, I went to the worship pastor and said, what does that mean? Like, I, I'm not mad at it. I just want to know when we as a congregation corporately are singing, if you're not here, I don't want to be. Like, about the church, if God is not present among us in this church, I, I should leave and find a new church? Or, like, help me understand what it is that we're singing, like, over and over again, and people are super jazzed about. You know what he said? Well, um, and, you know, and, uh, I don't really know. It just kind of came to me and it worked. And I'm thinking, they're jazz. So I asked people, like, I saw you really enjoying that song. What did you, they didn't have an answer either. They felt something. That line evoked something in it. But in that moment, I'm not saying they're not Christians. But in that moment, that's not worship. You're just really riding a good feeling. And that's okay. I eat a steak sometimes. It's good. And I really enjoy it. It's a good feeling. But it could be worship. Just got to connect it to the maker. But you just really rode a wave there. Um, again, I don't want to sound cynical. But the more hype. I hear and see in churches, the closer I lean in and want to listen and examine because we're usually glad to trade faith for a feeling. We're pretty quick to make that trade. You know why? Because faith can feel dry and faith can feel hard and faith can feel disappointing and faith can feel confusing. Read the Bible a little closer. How long, God? Why, God? And you would, God? And how come? Faith can feel that... Uh, but artificial faith, feelings are instant, addictive, and they're whatever you want them to be. And that's how that works. Uh, and it just so happens that the feelings that accompany artificial faith are typically tied to things that we're already passionate about. Does that make sense? Israel wants to defeat their enemies. God's not involved in it. We'll bring the ark. Yeah, God's here. No, no, no. They want this to happen. They already have strong passions about this. Artificial faith gives you feelings to undergird and lift up and push along the thing that you want to pursue that God's not even attached to. So, uh, yeah, artificial faith. Typically companies, things that we're already passionate about, not necessarily things that God is passionate about. And I'll give you some examples. In 2015, I'm from Boston, Massachusetts, I'm one of the oldest churches in Boston, one of the oldest churches in the country, used to be a pillar and buttress of truth, praise God for that, was hooping and hollering after their priest announced that gay marriage was legalized. And they dropped rose petals from the ceiling, and the congregation's going wild, and the priest said that the angels in heaven were singing, it's raining men. Um, that feeling accompanied something they were already passionate about. And in the same vein, uh, just a few years ago, I saw many of ultra-right-wing conservative churches having 24-7 services, prophesying and declaring that God would re-elect Donald Trump. They knew it. They're praying in tongues, and it's been spoken. It's been said. Da, 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 da. What happened? You guys were really sure about that, and now I'm confused. <laughs> the feeling accompanied something you were already passionate about. You just put God over it. And uh, a few months ago, we were in Alabama. I saw a giant flag, and it said, in Trump, we trust. And I said, what do you think about that? And I said, honestly, I respect it. Now, for the reasons you think, I said, at least they're honest about where their faith is. In Trump, we trust. Praise God that you're honest about it. Not for that. 
Do you see what I'm saying? Like, at least they're declaring it. You don't believe in God. You believe in Trump, and you, you see that. But, and it's not a Trump thing. Let's just move on. My point is, it's not just them. We all do this in one way or another. Uh, personal. When Ash was having complications with a third pregnancy, and we were in the hospital, and we were waiting and hoping for answers and praying that everything would be okay. And many people reach out to me. God won't let that baby die. He loves you. He wouldn't do that. He, do you know how bad I wanted to believe that? To take that as fact. I'm passionate about that truth. So much so. And is my God able? 100%. Could he do it? Absolutely. But he hadn't promised me that. He didn't give me that word. He didn't give me that certainty. And for me to hype myself up and go, this is exactly what he's going to do. This is what he would do. I believe, I believe. Instead, I just said, God, I trust you. Don't know what's going to happen. Didn't turn out the way I wanted. But I trust that whatever you decide is good and you will be be with us in it. We all do it in one way or another. We convince ourselves that what we want, our desire, is God's desire. Our passion, the thing that we're just, whoo, and I'm that is what God is passionate about. And our cause, our enemies, those are God's causes and his enemies. And we'll surf the wave of feelings all the way, never realizing the Holy Spirit wasn't involved in it anyways until we crash on the rocks. And then, why did God allow this to happen to me? And it's always accompanied when our cause is God's cause. We miss the cause, but we want to commit to it. We want God to be involved in it. So then we substitute our own adrenaline and emotions for the power and presence and peace of the Holy Spirit. And I really don't want to belabor this point. I promise I don't want to toe stomp. And so I'm going to just end this message with a quote that summarizes everything I'm trying to say. And then we'll pray. I read this from A.W. Tozer 16 years ago and never forgot it. It was this. If the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. But if the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everyone would know the difference. Say amen or ouch. Our programs and the good things we're doing, I'm all for those things. Is God involved in it? Is that what he wants? Uh, If I had to sum up the last two sermons in two sentences, I'd say it like this. Don't parade your causes as God's causes. When you do, uh, don't confuse your adrenaline with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Gracious God, you are so patient. And don't want us to walk in darkness and make it plain for us what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is true. Discerning your will for our life is not difficult. You have made it plain and clear to love you, love neighbor, to walk humbly, act justly, love mercy. Um, You've not hidden it from us. We don't have to figure it out. Help us to live into those things and not be distracted by side hustles, side passions, and then uh, try to drag you into it and put your rubber stamp of approval on it. It will only fail us. And we see this and not think that we're better than the Israelites because we're not. We're all prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. Let us see the faults in the Bible as the own faults that we struggled with in the past, in the present, or will in the future. And in your mercy, in your grace, with your help, know to walk in fullness of life and how to avoid that bear trap that is ever on the road in front of us. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus who made a way even when we fall and calls us his own. Amen.